We are so excited to see you all here. And um, just this started out as a women's event that we were talking about, I think, over coffee at Panera um, about a year ago. Diana had just gotten home from a trip overseas. Was that Thailand? India and Thailand. And she had been doing some rescues and been at some safe houses and that kind of thing. And there were there was a small group of us that were kind of her prayer team while she was away. And so we got together and we're kind of getting the lowdown. She was explaining to us everything about her trip and telling these amazing stories. And at the end of that, we were like, Diana, you need to share this with the people of Chapel Point. And so we kind of started talking about when that could happen and what kind of venue that could be. So started out as a women's event, and then the guys were like, wait a minute, we want to know about this too. So um, welcome to the men. Thank you for being here tonight. Um, we have a couple goals tonight. The first one is to educate, and I am pretty confident that I can assure you that we're all going to go out feeling much better informed about this topic than we came in. I know a lot of people have said, you know, I really don't know much about human trafficking. I've heard it's a problem, but couldn't really tell you a whole lot about it. So we're going to get educated tonight. But our second goal is to motivate. We want to leave tonight not just going, oh my goodness, what a horrible problem that is. We want to leave feeling like there's something that we can do, that we know better how to pray, that we know a way that we can get involved. And so that's the second goal of our evening. Um, there are some three-by-five cards in these little um, little carts in the middle of the row. If you need one, um, if you didn't grab one on the way in, I don't know if you heard this or not, but as Diana speaks, you are probably going to come up with some questions that you wonder about. So as she speaks, you can jot those down. There's some pens there, and if you need to get up or elbow somebody and have them grab you one, um, you can do that as she talks. And then just, just be writing down those questions. And at the end, she's found that this is a little more efficient to do it this way. She'll kind of um, compile all of those and respond to the questions at the end. So that's what those are for. Um, there's lots of desserts in the back, lots of coffee, so help yourself. Uh, go ahead and get up and get some more of that if you want it. But just want to tell you a little bit about Diana Sipsev. Many of you know her and love her. She is a gift to our church and an amazing resource. But Diana works as a clinical therapist at Brains Potential in Grand Rapids providing early intervention behavioral therapy to young children and their families. She specializes in working with children with developmental trauma, attachment disorders, pediatric anxiety, and other developmental disorders. Diana is also currently a doctoral student, as if that doesn't keep her busy enough. Um, she's researching the effects of human trafficking as a generational trauma experience upon early childhood development. She is passionate about fighting human trafficking and has partnered with several organizations over a decade doing outreach to red light districts, both in the United States and abroad. So that is the professional bio, but I can just tell you personally that the passion that Diana has, if you know her, you know that that is fueled by her love for Jesus Christ because she has a very deep love for Jesus and she has a deep faith. And it's strong, and it's solid, and it's being tested, and it's growing. And before I start crying about how much I love Diana, we're going to, um, let's just pray and commit this evening to the Lord. And since we're going to be sitting all night, why don't you stand up and pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are the God who sees, and you see every hurting soul. You see every wrong done. 
You see every amount of suffering, and God, you are a God of compassion, and you care. You care deeply about every single person. And God, as your church, you have called us to be a light in the darkness. Lord, I pray that you will motivate our hearts to do what we can do, to do what we're called to do. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us will leave here with a burden to, to pray and to get involved, however that is. Lord, not all of us are called to go overseas and do rescues, but some of us are. And some of us are called to do other things here at home. And um, Lord, we're all called to care. And I pray that you will place that on our hearts tonight. Holy Spirit, we just ask you to guide Diana's words, help her to um, just talk about those things that we need to hear tonight. Thank you so much for placing this passion on her heart. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you that you came to redeem this lost and broken world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And there's Diana. Well, good evening. I'd like to thank you all for being here today. This is a very important conversation, but a very difficult one that we're going to have. I especially thank all of the men who are here this evening. Oftentimes, this is an issue that can turn into, well, men are perpetrators and women are victims, and that is not the truth. We'll learn about some of that this evening. And it's also very important for victims of human trafficking, for survivors, to have experiences of interacting with healthy people, male and female. And so it's very important that we join in this fight together. And so I thank each of you for being here today. And please, as we go, please write down any questions that you have. And like Jackie said, we'll be going through those later. So to start, we'll talk about what is human trafficking exactly. Human trafficking is a modern-day form of slavery involving the illegal trade of people for exploitation or commercial gain. Traffickers use force, fraud, or coercion to lure their victims and force them into labor or commercial sexual exploitation. Typically, those who are targeted are persons who are vulnerable for a variety of reasons. Tonight, we will be focusing on primarily sexual exploitation and what that looks like with human trafficking. And we will learn about a lot of those vulnerabilities that people experience that makes them a target for traffickers and also what we can do to protect and safeguard against those various vulnerabilities. Human trafficking ends up being a very unique experience for those who are victims. Each story is unique. Um, each story of survival is very unique. But what we do find is that all trafficking victims share one essential experience, and that is the loss of freedom. We're going to watch a video about a young girl named Cassie who lives in the Philippines but was actually exploited and sexually exploited online through cyber sex trafficking. And so she was exploited by customers all around the world, even while she was physically located in the Philippines. She was abused from the ages of 12 to 16. We'll learn about why that is a target age. We will also learn about what can be done to rescue young girls, young boys like Cassie. Let's watch her story. It's really hard. It's like I, I was thinking I want to I want to die I want to die because of this pain, but I can't 
when first time uh, Mary Cooter telling me that oh, Manila is very nice, he said, so I can wear a nice clothes and then he taking care of me. He told me that he can help me to reach my, all my dreams. First time in Manila, it was very happy because there's a lot of building. You wear nice clothes, you have your own money, you can stay in a nice house. So Manila is very nice compared to my place. We are six big teams inside of the house of my recruiter. My recruiter hurt me every day when I do something bad that he don't like because he want every day, he want I need to follow him, but if I don't follow him, um, he's going to hurt me, just punk me, slap me in the face in front of the people. I really want to kill him. I really want to die that time, but I can't. It's feel very lonely for me because I was very far from my family and I can't tell them what happened to me because I was very scared. Good as to make me heal all the pain. It is in my second home I realize everything that you don't need to lose hope. If I see or if I hear or there is a victim of human trafficking like us, I just want her to comfort her, help her to move forward and just fight for your rights. Because that's the start where um, where I stand now. Did you catch that statistic at the end? Over twenty six hundred customers online from the US alone paid to watch her. And that is the reality of pornography. We'll talk about some of that later on as well. But pornography, cyber sex trafficking, that is what that looks like oftentimes. A young girl being forced to perform those acts and customers from all over the world paying to watch that being done. So when we consider human trafficking around the world, it looks different everywhere for cultural reasons, for economic reasons, for religious reasons, and we are going to unpack some of those. What we see is that in Asia, there's a lot of sex tourism that takes place. A lot of individuals from the West, oftentimes in that area, older men from Western parts of the world, come to Asia for sex tourism, specifically for that purpose, and it is much more in your face. So when you go to red light districts, there is pornography and sex shows and things like that being shoved in your face, literally. Sometimes families will go on vacations to those places, and a street that is perfectly harmless during the day is a red light district, and so at night that will turn into a completely different world, and oftentimes people are unaware of what is going on until that time of night hits, and all of a sudden that place transforms into a red light district. We also see that 
similar to Cassie's story, families oftentimes bring their young children or adolescents to these big cities in hopes of financial opportunities, in hopes of educational opportunities, any opportunity. But once they are in that big city, they are unprepared and they are oftentimes vulnerable and at risk and as a result become exploited. In Thailand specifically, sex tourism is, accounts for 60% of their gross national income. So people often ask, well, isn't this illegal? Technically, yes, but when it accounts for a country's 60% of their gross national income, it is very difficult to work with law enforcement to actually enforce things that are in fact illegal because it brings in so much money for that country. We find that in the Middle East, it looks a little bit different, and you'll see that the numbers are lower for that part of the world, but we do believe that that is largely underrepresented. Many of the communities in that part of the world are very closed off. It's very difficult to enter into those communities, not only to find out what is going on, but also to do prevention or rescue work. So we do believe that the numbers there are much higher than what is represented even in this graph in this picture. And we find that a lot of the trafficking or sexual exploitation that happens in those communities is within family systems. So there's a lot more sexual abuse within families, cases of incest, things like that, or just gang rapes within families. We find that it's very hard to do prevention and rescue work in those areas for that reason. It's very hard to connect with those very closed off communities. When we look at places like Africa, the face of human trafficking is very much children. We see child soldiers, we see children being forced into labor trafficking, especially there's a lot of fish trades, fishing trades that happen. Uh, on those coasts, and there's a lot of child labor trafficking that takes place as well. And then if we look towards the West, in Europe and in the Americas, we see a lot more trafficking that happens online. I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but you can purchase a person on Craigslist. Oftentimes these are listed as escorts which means that individuals are technically listed as 18 or older, implying that it is consensual escort service. However, oftentimes those girls are much younger, they are underage, they are not 18, nor are they doing that willingly, they're being forced to do that. Backpage is a huge website that was actually shut down last year. Um, President Trump signed that into order and the authorities were able to shut down that website where hundreds of thousands of people were being sold directly, specifically for sexual exploitation. But there are many other websites that now are trying to build that back up. And so that's this constant effort of shutting down websites that are promoting that while new ones pop up. There's a lot of forced prostitution in these areas. There's also the huge impact of social media. We already saw what it looks like with cyber sex trafficking for individuals like Cassie, but social media specifically exists, not just as a vulnerability and a way that people can be targeted, but also just a form of sexual exploitation itself. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Snapchat. 
Snapchat, though, you may not know, was created by two college students specifically for the purpose of sexting. So they wanted a forum where they could send uh, naked photos, sexual content, things like that, and that was the reason that they created Snapchat. If you look in their bylaws, you will also see that they own the rights to all the material that is distributed on Snapchat. So any photos, any videos, the big draw of Snapchat is that things are deleted or they disappear after a certain amount of time. But in their bylaws, it states that they own the rights to all of that. So any of the photos or videos that are shared over that social media platform, they then oftentimes sell. And so that is a huge way that traffickers are able to get in and use those photos, use those videos, and target those individuals themselves. Cosmo After Dark was a story on Snapchat that was going for about a week. And basically, it was porn that was being shown every Friday night at 6 p.m. on Snapchat. Anyone could access it, and individuals as young as 13 had open access to Cosmo After Dark just through Snapchat. We'll learn later what you can do to fight and combat a lot of these things, but one incredible way is Cosmo After Dark specifically was shut down after only one week because there was such an uproar about it and Chris McKenna specifically from Protect Young Eyes advocated on social media and everywhere over and over again how outrageous and horrendous that was and it was shut down after a week. So these things are very present, they're very real, they are all over social media and that is how many young kids in this part of the world are targeted and lured into this. And especially all of you parents, I encourage you, please, please be aware of the social media platforms that your kids are using. Know the ins and outs of them because they are a huge trap, potentially, if they are not used appropriately and not monitored. So let's talk about some of the specifics. Human trafficking is a $150 billion global industry. It is very quickly coming to surpass the drug trade, the arms trade, all of those. Because what traffickers find, a lot of people think that human trafficking, sex trafficking is about the sex. It's not. At its core, it's about money. And traffickers are finding that very quickly. If they sell guns or if they sell drugs or any other item, once they've sold it once, it is gone. But when you sell a person, you can sell that person over and over and over again until either they run away, they're rescued, or many of them don't survive. And so there is much more money to be made in the selling of human beings, and that is what is driving this industry. It is estimated that there are 42 victims globally. However, again, we believe that that number is an underrepresentation of what is truly going on in the world. In India, there are, there are 18 million estimated victims alone just in that one country. It is a significant problem in many parts of Asia and in India, it's a huge issue. 
like I said, in Thailand, it's 60% of their gross national income. And so a lot of the funds that are being distributed in different parts of the world, even when it's illegal, they're able to keep going because it drives so much money, so much business. When we look at places like Cambodia, we find things that are referred to as chicken farms. And they're referred to as chicken farms because in those areas, there are just little villages, little communities where you will find children, little boys, little girls, really young, and you will find chickens. And in those villages, you can buy a chicken, you can buy a little girl, or you can buy a little boy for the same price. It's horrifying. And there are documentaries and rescue videos that show these really young kids having to perform all of these different types of sex acts and selling themselves, being trained on what to say, how to advertise themselves, and people going there specifically for those purposes, for purchasing their kids in the same place where they purchase chickens. A new trend that is rising, something I just recently found out about, is the orphan tourism trade. Australia is the first country to recognize orphanage tourism as modern-day slavery, and they're calling it the perfect scam for the 21st century. Basically, traffickers have figured out that individuals with really great intentions are visiting different parts of the world, doing all these wonderful humanitarian efforts, volunteer efforts, and visiting these orphanages with these kids who are vulnerable and need homes or need money or need food. And they're finding that if they open up orphanages with different kids, they can get a lot of money into those places. So they are advertising their homes to families as a place where they can bring their children to get an education, to get opportunities, to get the resources that maybe aren't available to them elsewhere. And families are bringing their kids there and they're being exploited for this purpose by volunteers who are coming in with good intentions, not knowing what's going on underneath. They're also just kidnapping kids as well. Kids who are homeless or vulnerable for a variety of reasons, they're placing in these orphanages and then advertising them to individuals who want to go volunteer and they're just channeling money, bringing in so much money at the exploitation, at the expense of these children. And that is the new trend that we see in this century. We also need to recognize that pornography and cyber sex trafficking, those are worldwide issues. Homeland Security is often rescuing infants as young as several months old who are being sexually abused, raped, that is being videotaped and people pay to watch those things. Six months old, babies, and that is the reality of what human trafficking looks like, of what sex trafficking looks like, and that is the reality of what pornography, in many cases, looks like. It is the exploitation of people at their expense. I read another statistic recently that 90% of the prostitutes in Las Vegas are forced to be doing the work that they are doing. So even in a place like that where it looks like 
it is voluntary or it looks like it's um, sex work that people want to be doing, 90% of those are forced prostitutes being victimized and abused over and over again. We also find that specifically new, new studies are emerging related to pornography, the way that it damages the mind. And we'll talk a little bit more later about the brain and how trauma and some of these issues impact the brain. But they did a study with individuals who were exposed to significant amounts of pornography. And they wanted to see how it impacts their capacity for empathy. And what they found was individuals who were exposed to significant amounts of pornography, when they were presented with the porn narratives as compared to transcripts of instances of sexual abuse, those individuals could not tell the difference between what was a porn narrative and what was a story of abuse. And that is how it impacts the mind. That is the severe impact that pornography has on a person's mind to no longer be able to differentiate between what is a pornographic narrative and what is a story of horrific abuse. So if we consider what human trafficking looks like nationally, it is estimated that there are 1.2 million victims in the United States, and the average victim who is targeted is typically 11 to 14 years of age. We find that this is a significant, a significant problem, not only because of their age, but because they are juveniles, oftentimes they are found through the juvenile court system, through the juvenile justice system. I used to work at Ionia County Community Mental Health in partnership with Ionia County Probate Court. And I saw personally instances of this. That is one of the ways that our legal system and our law enforcement system still needs to be changed in terms of its mindset. So these girls would come through the system either for shoplifting charges or if they're older for prostitution charges or whatever charges, substance abuse. Substance abuse was such a common one. And they would go through the system and they would be charged and then they would be released or they would go to juvenile detention and the issue would just keep going and they would just keep cycling through because no one thought to question, why is this young girl repeatedly cycling through the juvenile court system? And one girl that I was working with, she was in middle school and that was what happened to her. She continued to repeat through the juvenile court system. And after the second time she came through, I started to wonder, what, what is going on here? What's the story here? We need to dig a little deeper as to what's going on with this girl. And she shared, she kept coming in with runaway charges. And every time she would supposedly run away, she would be found with her boyfriend who was much older, I believe in his early 20s, and they would charge her, they would bring her back home to her family, and then shortly thereafter, she would come through again after having run away. Her family thought she was legitimately running away because they continued to receive texts from her phone 
But what they didn't know is that her boyfriend had full control over her phone. So he was texting her family from her phone, reassuring them and telling them that that's where she wanted to be and she wanted to be with him and all of this stuff. She had no control over any of her communication. And so they would just keep bringing her back and then she would be drawn to him again. He would lure her away or force her. I don't know the specifics of what was going on within their relationship. And then she would come through the system again. And I finally told them, I said, I think she's being trafficked. I strongly believe that he is either exploiting her or abusing her or selling her. And they finally started to dig deeper. I said, instead of targeting her, when we have contact with her, we need to start targeting that boyfriend. Because what is he doing with this girl? And finally, that mindset started to shift of instead of what's right in front of us, we need to dig deeper or we need to look a little bit further and see what's going on in the life of this girl. And that's a mindset that all of us need to adopt when we see something right in front of us to look a little deeper what is actually going on. And that's some of the problem of how human trafficking comes into play in the U.S., just with some of how our systems are set up and the charges that so many of these young kids get. We're not looking at that deeper picture. So then if we consider locally, what does this look like here in Michigan? Michigan has 12 of the 15 flashpoints that traffickers look for when they are targeting an area. Women at Risk International is one organization that does a lot of work in this area. And some of these flashpoints that were developed identify which criteria draw a trafficker to an area. And some of the ones that Michigan has, we are close to several bodies of water. That makes transportation pretty easy. We're also close to international borders. That also makes it very convenient for traffickers in terms of movement of people. We draw tourism. We have a wonderful climate. People visit Mackinac Island from all over the place. People are drawn to West Michigan. It's a beautiful area. We have lovely seasons. But tourism draws people, the movement of people, and that draws traffickers as well. We have seasons. Seasons bring seasonal work, migrant workers. They exist as a vulnerable population that exists as a draw for human traffickers. We also have a fairly large middle class population, especially here in West Michigan. With that middle class population, oftentimes comes the mindset of, well, human trafficking is something that happens somewhere else. That's not really a problem here. And that type of mindset is also a draw for traffickers. That ignorance, that lack of awareness of the issue is what actually draws people to this area. Women at Risk International also has an excellent intensive training that they do called the Civilian First Responder Training, where they go into detail about a lot of these things. And you can learn more information about some of those flashpoints. So when we're talking about international borders, Detroit to Canada is the most traveled freeway in North America, and prostitution is legal in Canada. So that is a very easy entrance point or exit point for traffickers when they're moving people. Here in Grand Rapids, we have 40 massage parlors just in Grand Rapids that offer sexual add-on services 
That's just in Grand Rapids. Some of them are on 28th Street. If you know what you're looking for when you drive by, you'll see them. You'll see that they're the ones that are open 24 hours. You'll see that they're the ones that oftentimes have dark shades over the windows, so you can't see into them. Sometimes different places even have bars on the windows. And so it's very secluded, very hidden as to what is going on there. And sexual exploitation is happening in every single one of those places, even here, right here in Grand Rapids. So when we consider what does it look like here in Michigan, I want to share the story of Teresa Flores with you. Teresa Flores is a survivor of human trafficking who wrote the book, The Slave Across the Street. I would highly encourage you to read that book. It's an incredible story of her survival, of her experience and her journey. And she grew up on the east side of the state. She grew up in a very affluent area, in a very affluent family. Her grandfather was the judge in the community. Both of her parents were very well known. She went to a good school. She was a good student. And when she was in high school, she was targeted by one of her peers. And in a very innocent way, they began to form a friendship. She had feelings for him. She was interested in him. He was her age. He was a very nice guy, seemingly. And slowly, a relationship began to develop. And over time, we'll learn about this grooming process, over time, as she began to trust him, they began to talk more and more at school. And the first time that she decided to hang out with him, he was going to give her a ride home from school or practice or something. And she got in his car and she went with him. And instead of taking her home, he took her to his home or his one of his family members' homes. And there she was abused and she was raped by many of his cousins and his uncles, and they were the traffickers. They took pictures of all of it and documented everything. And later, when it was over, they showed her all of that, and they said, we know who your family is, we know who your grandfather is, we know everything about you and your family. We took pictures of everything, so you work for us now. And if you tell anyone, we will hurt or kill your family or you, or we will show pictures to everyone of what you did and what kind of a girl you are. And through that fear, through that manipulation, through all of those tactics, they were able to coerce her and they began to pick her up every night. She continued to live with her family. No one knew. After school, every evening, they would pick her up from her home take her to these other houses. She would be sold to customer after customer after customer every night. And then early in the morning, they would take her back home. She would wake up, go to school, and do the exact same thing over and over and over again. And no one ever knew. And no one ever asked. No one asked why her grades were dropping, why her personality changed, why she seemed to be a different person. Those were all signs that people could have looked for, signs that we need to be aware of and need to be mindful of in the people who are in our circle of influence. 
And so this continued on throughout her high school career until one night they did the same thing again, but that night she said was the most horrific abuse that she had experienced. She was in a motel room and that night they left her for dead. She, when she finally came to, she found herself naked in that motel room. She left the motel room and she found a 24-hour diner that she went into. And the waitress there asked her, are you okay? And naturally she said, yes, because she was so fearful. She didn't know what to say. And thankfully that person did not believe her and called 911, got help, and she was finally rescued. And she was rescued, but her story, her journey of healing and restoration was only beginning. That was only the beginning for her. And many years later, she was driving and she was talking to God and she said, you know, in order for me to survive, I need to find some sort of purpose in this because if I don't, I don't know how I will be able to survive and go on. She said, I need to be able to find a way to help other people who have experienced what I experienced. And she said that the word soap popped into her mind. She said, okay, what am I supposed to do with soap? But she came up with the acronym Save Our Adolescents from Prostitution, and she began to develop this program. As she was thinking and praying more, she realized that if she would have had the opportunity to reach out for help, it would have been when she was in the bathroom. She said that that was the only time on each of those nights when she was ever alone, was when she was allowed to wash up in between customers. And so she developed this idea, this program, of putting the human trafficking hotline number on bars of soap and leaving those in hotels and motels everywhere. Her program now works all over the U.S., especially at events like Art Prize that draw a lot of people to this area. And when people are drawn to an area, trafficking comes into an area. The Detroit Auto Show the Super Bowl, all of those events bring in lots of people. People bring money, money draws traffickers, and those are hot spots. And so she started to do this program. She said, when I was there, I didn't even know what number to call. I didn't even know who to tell or what to tell them. I didn't know what had been done to me. I didn't know that I was a trafficking survivor. And so she started this initiative to educate people on that and to give them a lifeline to reach out to. I've had the opportunity to do multiple outreaches with Teresa. And specifically, I remember one at the Detroit Auto Show. We were tracking the numbers online. And we were looking at Craigslist and Backpage. It was still running at the time. And we found that prior to the event, there were maybe several hundreds of postings or advertisements available. And leading up, the numbers went up from the hundreds up into the thousands in the days prior in terms of people available for sale. So when we say those events bring in traffickers, they bring in traffickers. The numbers went up into the thousands, and that was just people being advertised online. Last time I did this training, someone said, well, I've heard that now 
for different events like Super Bowl and things like that, they're implementing laws where kids can't be with other parents or different things like that to try to safeguard and protect. And those are all great, except the typical process is not what we often think of, like the snatch and grab where people are kidnapped or something. Those relationships are built very intentionally, and oftentimes people who are already in bondage are brought into those events to be sold to the hundreds or thousands of people that are in that area. So it's usually people who are already being exploited brought into those areas during the time of those events, knowing that there will be the opportunity for many customers during those events. And so that is what we need to be on guard for. So then if we consider, okay, so what makes a person targeted? What makes them vulnerable? We need to consider several vulnerabilities. Emotional, relational, financial, circumstantial, and age, either chronological or developmental. If a person has low self-esteem, or they struggle with other emotional issues, perhaps depression or other things, or they are under financial burden, whether as an individual or their family, or they have relational strains between themselves, their friends, their family members, or they don't have any strong relationships at all, those are all going to be things that make them potentially vulnerable to be targeted. We also need to consider a person's age with regard to development. Age can be looked at either chronologically biologically what their age is, or developmentally. There's also a huge target for individuals who may be chronologically of older age, but developmentally present at a lower level of functioning because they can be targets because of their developmental capacities. We're going to talk more about the brain in a little bit, but what I will share is that the prefrontal cortex is the part of our brain right here behind our forehead that is responsible for all of our executive functioning skills, for critical thinking, problem solving, logical reasoning, and emotional regulation. That's important to know because our prefrontal cortex does not fully develop until mid-20s. For girls, it's around age 24. For boys, it's around age 27. And so when they are in their teens, or even younger, preteens, or even a little bit older, young adults in their early 20s, that part of their brain that's responsible for critical thinking, emotional regulation, all of those higher level functioning skills, that part of the brain is still developing. It's still very underdeveloped. And that makes those persons vulnerable and susceptible to manipulation, to people who are trying to fill in those gaps of whatever those vulnerabilities are, and it makes their decision-making skills poorer at that time. So when we look at how does a trafficker then target a person, we need to look at the six stages of grooming. Grooming is simply the process of preparing an individual for future exploitation. So a trafficker will sometimes target a victim themselves, or they will sometimes have like a middleman 
similar to what happened in Teresa's situation. Her traffickers did not target her themselves. They were older men. She would have right away been on guard against that. But the guy in the middle, in between, he was a peer only a little bit older than her, a couple years older than her, same age. He was able to groom her by building that relationship with her, and that was how she was vulnerable and susceptible to that. So the first step is targeting a victim, identifying who is vulnerable based on some of those vulnerabilities that we just discussed. The second step is gaining their trust and their information, so beginning to build that relationship once that's been established. Then thirdly, beginning to fill that need. Oh, you don't have a phone? Oh, I can get you a phone. That's no big deal. I don't mind. I have a really great job. I'll buy you a phone. Oh, no one hangs out with you? I would love to take you to dinner. You are so beautiful. You are so amazing. Filling that emotional need, filling that financial need, filling that relational need, whatever that gap is, stepping into that gap and building a relationship based on that. After they begin filling that need, there's a process of isolation. So then, either physically or emotionally, that perpetrator begins to distance the victim from other people in their lives, either physically keeping them away from other people or emotionally spending time with only that person until they slowly begin to be isolated from everyone else in their life. After the process of isolation, that is when usually the abuse begins, whether physical and sexual or in terms of services that must be repaid. Oh, well, I provided you with this new apartment that you live in with me now, and I provided you with a phone and new clothes and these designer handbags. You're going to have to pay me back for all of that. And that is how that abuse begins, when all of a sudden that person must begin to pay back for all of those things that were provided. And remember, this is now in the context of a trusting relationship where they think that person loves them and cares about them, and they now think that that's what they have to do, or that is what is normal, or that is just what is expected of them because they've been isolated from everyone else in their life, and they now have no one else to turn to besides meet the demands that are placed upon them. After that abuse begins, they start to maintain control with threats, violence, fear, blackmail, all of those tactics to then maintain control of that individual. So because of those vulnerabilities that we discussed in the way that individuals develop in some of that timeline, grooming is oftentimes most effective for individuals between the ages of 11 and 16. And that is why kids are targeted at that age, because it's easiest to target them at that point in their development. We need to be mindful that these perpetrators or individuals are not usually kidnappers who just come off the street. This comes in the context of a trusting relationship, either a relationship that is new and then begins to be built, or a relationship that has already been established, a family member, a friend, a doctor, a member of law enforcement. Those are all very sad circumstances, but very real. Teachers, any of those individuals who potentially already have a relationship with that child and then start the grooming process to then exploit that child or individual, not always a child, but oftentimes.
So then if we look at some of the presence of relationship between human trafficking and the church, I think this is important to recognize. I want to share with you another story of a survivor named Vanessa. I've had the privilege of doing several trainings with her as well where she has shared her story. And Vanessa is a lady in the Midwest area who was abused, trafficked by her mom. From a very young age, she was sold by her mom. I remember her sharing of how she would be in another room listening to her mom negotiate her price with a customer in another room in their house. Those are the conversations that she remembers overhearing as a child. And she also often said that the church was her mom's playground. So they would go to a church and they would begin to get involved. Her mom would form relationships. She was very charismatic. People loved her, would get to know them. And then her mom would begin volunteering in nursery or other children's programs, wherever she could get in. And that is where she would begin that grooming process that we just discussed to then later exploit those children and abuse those children. And Vanessa said that oftentimes, as soon as there was any suspicion of what was going on, not anything documented, not anything charged at that point, any suspicion, they would leave and they would, she would start the process over again in a new church before anything could happen and over and over again church to church. And Vanessa was eventually rescued. She, she said oftentimes her only safe havens were the time that she spent with her dad. Her parents were not together. So the times that she had spent with her dad, but again, no one knew what was going on with her. She was rescued. She was able to get out of all of that. And she has also an incredible story. She is married and she has several children and just her survival is incredible, her story is incredible, and her passion for life is incredible. But it is important to recognize how the church is potentially vulnerable to human trafficking because of some of those things. So first of all, there's oftentimes a trusting mindset. That's excellent. We should be welcoming to every single person who comes into a church, but we also need to be wise and we need to be on guard. We need to protect both the people coming in and the people who are here. We need to be on guard and recognize that predators do target places like this. Oftentimes, especially in small churches, there is either no security or limited security. I'm very thankful that that's something that we have here. We have security, and so people are able to know that they are safe here. And We have individuals who are trained to keep us safe while we are here, and that is excellent. But that is not the case in many churches, especially small churches. There isn't any of that, and that's a huge vulnerability. And then oftentimes... For children's workers, there are no background checks. So any individual who seems nice can begin volunteering in children's ministries, again, especially in smaller churches. Background checks don't take place, and predators are very easily able to take advantage of that. Those are all things that we need to be aware of and we need to safeguard against.
So we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the effects of human trafficking and why are they so severe. I have the definition of trauma there for you. Trauma is basically any experience which overwhelms a person's capacity to cope with that experience. Because of that, trauma is very subjective. It's unique for each person. What may be traumatic for one person might not be traumatic for another person. For example, if a family was in a car accident, for one person, that experience may have just been stressful and frightening and scary, but they were able to cope with it. For another person in that same car accident, it might have completely overwhelmed their ability to cope and registered then as a trauma experience. So it's different for everybody based on their mind and body's response to that. There are different types of trauma, single blow versus repeated trauma and natural versus human-made trauma. Single blow is something that happens one time, like perhaps that car accident situation. It happened one time and it registered as a single blow trauma for that person. Repeated trauma is things that happen over and over again, such as abuse. Abuse is considered a repeated trauma because it happens over and over again. Natural trauma, things like hurricanes, natural disasters, things that happen naturally in the environment and are not human-caused. Human-made trauma is something that is perpetrated by one human onto another person. And so we find that the psychological effects of trauma are likely to be most severe if they are repeated in nature, if it is human-caused, unpredictable, multifaceted, sadistic in nature, if it was undergone in childhood, and if it was perpetrated by a caregiver. And when we put human trafficking into that context, we see that it usually hits every single one of those criteria. And for that reason, human trafficking oftentimes registers as one of the most severe psychological forms of trauma that a person can experience. Some of the possible effects of it include all types of abuse, sexually transmitted diseases or infections, isolation, physical and emotional, the loss of freedom and personal identity, separation from family, loss of the attachment relationship. Trauma and attachment are my two really big clinical passions, so those are things that I love to do trainings on in much more detail. We don't have time for all of that today, but if you're interested in learning more about that, I'd be more than happy to share with you. Forced substance abuse, physical burns and branding, miscarriage, miscarriages or forced abortions, and then many medical conditions, illnesses, or disease. So, of course, if we consider all of those possible effects, the severity of the effect on a person after experiencing human trafficking is severe, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. It affects a person's every capacity of functioning. Because of that, we often see that individuals who have experienced human trafficking develop many forms of mental illness. This can include anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, developmental trauma disorder. This is something that many, even professionals in the field, are not aware of. Developmental trauma is a trauma that occurs to a person 
a young child who is still developing and it severely impacts their capacity for development because of how the trauma registers in their mind and body. Reactive attachment disorder, again, for kids who have experienced this. Personality disorders, dissociative disorders, eating disorders, medical issues, physical illness, substance use, generational secondary trauma and comorbidity. Dissociative disorders were something that are oftentimes still disputed in the field of psychology, and dissociative identity disorder is what used to be called multiple personality disorder. You might be familiar with that term. And what I found is that I had not ever in my clinical practice met anyone with dissociative identity disorder until I met several survivors of human trafficking who developed dissociative identity disorder because that was the only way that their mind could cope with what they had experienced. They literally had to dissociate from that, completely separate themselves, and for many of them, a lot of the trauma, even though others were aware of what happened to them, they had no cognitive recollection in their main identity of what took place because it was so severe, their mind couldn't cope with it. And so they had to dissociate from that and separate themselves from it mentally, literally in order to survive. That also shows the incredible capacity of our minds and what we're able to do in order to survive. Comorbidity refers to when a person experiences more than one illness, whether physical or mental at the same time. And we see a lot of those taking place in individuals who have experienced severe complex trauma. Because of that, as this quote says from one researcher, the range of possible contexts makes it almost impossible to dictate exactly what the outcome will be of a complex trauma experience such as human trafficking because there's such a range of all the possible effects that they could experience and what type of impact that can have on any given person individually. It's also important to note that because these effects are so severe, the average life expectancy for a person who has been trafficked, if not rescued, they're not able to get out of it, if they remain in it, the average life expectancy is only seven years past the time of that trafficking experience beginning because of how severely detrimental these effects are, which also makes it so incredible that individuals who are survivors and have found purpose and have found a way to work through that, that is incredible, and that is a true testament to not only what we're able to do, but what God is able to do in the people that he chooses to use. So if we look at the effects of trauma on the brain, we're going to refer back to that prefrontal cortex that we talked about earlier, and we're going to talk about the amygdala. So the amygdala is a little part of our brain back here, that is our survival center. It gives us our fight or flight response, which means that when we experience something that's an emergency, that's the part of our brain that tells us, this is an emergency, we need to react immediately. It's our survival mechanism. And what's interesting is that when the amygdala is activated, our prefrontal cortex shuts down. And that's a very important function because 
if, for example, let's say you put your hand on a hot stove, if that happens, you need your brain to tell you immediately, that's an emergency, get your hand out of there. You don't have time to use your prefrontal cortex to think about all of the possible outcomes of that action, to decide on how you should solve that problem, to decide your course of action, figure out how you feel about it. You don't have time for all of that. And so your amygdala tells your brain, this is an emergency, you need to react immediately. So it's a very important function. However, our amygdala can become overactive. So for a person who has experienced complex trauma or severe and repeated trauma, their amygdala is activated over and over and over again. If they are living in a constant state of stress and shock and survival, their amygdala is all the time activating their sympathetic nervous system, stress cortisol hormones shooting through their body all the time, and if they're triggered by that trauma over and over again, they never have the opportunity to calm back down, basically. And so that means they're constantly living in a state of survival, and they're constantly living in a state of their prefrontal cortex not being activated and not using, not having the ability or opportunity to use those executive functioning skills. So imagine if you are interacting with a person or who has experienced complex trauma and they are never able to use their critical thinking skills, logical reasoning, problem solving, emotional regulation skills, they are just living in a state of constant survival because their brain is activated for that stress survival response over and over again. And we can talk for a minute about why and how that stress response is activated. I didn't put this slide in here, but I think it's important to note. Our, we have the capacity not just for cognitive memories that our brain remembers, but for somatic memories that our body registers in our system. So if, for example, um, you smell something, a pleasant smell, maybe a pie, an apple pie or something, and it reminds you of a happy memory of a certain family member, something like that. That is a somatic memory. That is something that you experience through your senses that registers with a specific experience. And those can be positive or negative. So we can also have traumatic somatic memories. So when a person smells something that reminds them of the room they were in where they were abused, or they hear a particular song that was played all the time in the environment where they were abused, all of those things are also going to register as somatic memories, which means even if that person isn't confronted with their trafficker, say, ever again, but they smell that smell, or they hear that song, or they see a certain color that's associated with that traumatic memory, that will elicit that traumatic, that survival response. Their amygdala will activate. This is an emergency. Get in survival mode. And they won't be able to use their executive functioning skills. They'll enter into that state of survival. And so imagine that. If you've experienced horrific trauma and abuse over and over again, just imagine the amount of somatic memories that are then registered in your body. How many smells, how many sights, how many sounds are going to trigger that trauma over and over again. 
and cause that person to be existing in this state of survival all the time. Not only do we see that, but we also know that severe trauma affects and negatively impacts the actual composition of our prefrontal cortex. So it also damages the actual capacity of the prefrontal cortex to do its functions. Severe and repeated trauma over and over again doesn't allow those parts of the brain to function in the way that they should. Now, our brains are also very resilient, so they are able to redevelop those capacities. There is hope for all of that, but that is a very lengthy process because like any, I often tell people it's like a habit. Our brains love to travel down little paths and whatever path they've driven, they love to go down that path over and over again. So it's really hard to train the brain to learn new patterns, but it is possible we are able to do that, but it's a lengthy process. So what we're finding is that in terms of treatment and intervention, traditional talk therapy is not effective for individuals who have experienced complex trauma. And that is something that is still not even well known within the field of clinical therapy, individuals who are even providing treatment services for individuals with trauma. Research is actually showing that traditional talk therapy is oftentimes more detrimental than it is helpful. And that is because just because an individual has potentially become numb enough to tell that story over and over again, that does not mean that it is healing for them. And so what we're finding is things that are much more healing are rhythm and movement, when we can help a person reconnect what their body is experiencing with what their mind is experiencing, that helps a person develop that capacity for self-regulation, for emotional regulation. Another therapy that is very effective for the treatment of complex trauma is EMDR. Um, you can go and research that if you're interested in learning more about that specifically, but that is one that is emerging as very effective for the treatment of complex trauma. Attachment-based therapy, rhythm and movement, and I'll even share with you, one study found that individuals with complex trauma who did either only yoga or only tr traditional talk therapy the individuals who participated in yoga, just learning about movement and exercise, had tremendously better results than individuals who did only talk therapy. So when we're providing resources for individuals, we need to be educated in the resources that we're providing. We can't refer them to traditional counseling because that will end up being more detrimental to their overall health. We need to be educated in how we're supporting individuals who have experienced very complex trauma. What we do find is that existentialism is another form of therapy that is very effective and that is basically purpose finding. I'll talk a little bit more about that later and why it's effective, but that is what we are learning. I'd like to share with you some of the models that I've seen and some of the work that still needs to be done. There is much more research that needs to be done, like I said, even within 
different disciplines within legal systems, within law enforcement, within therapeutic interventions, many professionals still are very unaware of the effects of human trafficking, of complex trauma, and are undereducated on those things. We need more research, we need more awareness on it. I'm very pleased that many disciplines now are requiring human trafficking training, whether in nursing or whether in social work or in education, occupational therapy, all of those are starting to require that. And that's very necessary, it's very needed. So when I was in India last year, like Jackie mentioned, I had the opportunity to visit a residential facility that was specifically for children who were rescued from red light districts. And what was excellent about that place was the fact that we even had such a hard time getting in there. The only reason we were able to get in was because they asked me to do trauma assessments of all the kids that were there. Otherwise, their location was not shared anywhere. They had incredible security measures to ensure the safety of their children that would be there. And it was very hard to even find out about it or get into it unless we had known, which we did, of a child who was there. So the children that were there were either rescued directly from red light districts, they were found homeless or orphaned there, or some of them were brought in by teenage moms who were being trafficked in the red light districts and they brought their children, their young children there, different circumstances. But it was set up as a home. And so these children had the opportunity to go to a very safe school within a close distance that was also in a secure place where they would not be found or potentially re-exploited. And they had the opportunity to receive that education. Oftentimes, we should note that too, that's a vulnerability. In other parts of the world, children who are educated are a target. Children who know English are a target because they can be sold to customers who are multilingual or specifically speak English. So that is a huge, huge target for kids in other parts of the world. So these children were safe. They had safeguards from all of those things. It was set up as a home, and so they had the opportunity to learn what is a family? What is a regular day? What does it mean to play? How do we learn through play? And they had the opportunity to learn Literally, what does it mean to be a child and to be loved? And the setup of that was very intimate, and those the individuals who opened that home were very eager to learn how they could help these children, but their resources were so scarce. They said that they had hoped for over a year, they had reached out to different resources to have someone come in and do assessments of their kids because they didn't know with a lot of them were they seeing the effects of trauma or autism or other issues. They didn't know what was going on and they couldn't find anyone. And so that was how we got in contact with them. We knew one of the little girls who was placed in that home and so we were able to reach out to them and we said, I was with Becky McDonald from Women at Risk International, and she said, we have someone on our team who works with kids, and she can come in and do an assessment of all the kids there. And that lady started crying. She said, you know, we reached out to so many different resources throughout India. We haven't been able to find anything. We finally just started praying, God, you just need to bring someone to us 
because we're not able to get into contact with anyone. And she said, and a couple months later, here you guys are out of nowhere. So it's just incredible how God can connect those pieces and put people in the right spot if we're willing to be used. In Guatemala, there was a really excellent program as well that I saw. They were able to coordinate with the court systems in a very positive way. So girls who were rescued, who were survivors, were able to come to that home and live there. They had several homes, and one of them was specifically for girls who were moms, and they were learning how to take care of their babies. Most of them were still practically babies themselves, raising kids. But they were able to learn what that is like and also have respite from those demands and receive the treatment that they need. Same thing, they were educated at a specific school and bused there for safety reasons. But instead of being targeted by the court system for all these different runaways, substance abuse, whatever charges, they were able to partner with the court to begin prosecuting those perpetrators. So it was a very excellent partnership with the court system. They would often be identified through the court, but then that would flip and they would become recognized as the victims that they are and the perpetrators would be targeted. They didn't have as much of the bureaucracy and red tape that we have here that makes it really difficult for those processes to happen in the way that they really need to. So that was a very excellent model that we can learn a lot from. One model here in Tennessee, in the U.S. is in Tennessee that provides excellent treatment and resources. It's called Thistle Farms, and they provide full rehabilitation. So the girls or women who enter their program first start with two years of intensive therapy, and they are residing in this place, on this residential campus, while they are there. They're simultaneously able to begin work programs because oftentimes it's great if you're rescued, but then if you were trafficked as an adolescent, maybe you never finished high school, you never went to college, you're not going to know what to do or have the skills or capacity or education to be able to do anything different. And so, so many people are re-trafficked or re-traumatized, re-abused, coerced again because no one helped them with anything post-rescue. And that's where all of the work really needs to begin. So that work process is very important. At Thistle Farms, their families can come into that program and they can help them with housing afterwards. So after they've participated in that two-year intensive therapy, they're able to help them find further housing. Here in Michigan, we have programs or safe houses in the Grand Rapids area, Detroit, Lansing, Kalamazoo, and Traverse City, and that's excellent. However, only several of them are able to provide emergency rescue or shelter or immediate assistance. So that's a huge need. If one of those programs gets a call for a rescue, but then they have nowhere to house that girl, nowhere to place her safely for the night because there's only a limited amount of beds, that's a very big issue. And so there's a huge need for more resources, more program development, more opportunities for further safe houses to be developed 
and for the programs that exist to have the funds that they need to be able to address these issues. So there is hope and there can be success in the healing process. What we find is that early attachment and sensory memory are huge. We talked about that somatic memory briefly. But the early attachment relationship is the relationship between a primary caregiver and an infant. Usually it's a parent-child relationship in which the child develops feelings of emotional security, emotional safety, and it's in the context of that relationship that a child actually begins to develop those prefrontal cortex skills that we talked about. So on the challenging side, if there's even a young mom who has a child while she's being trafficked in the midst of all of this trauma, if she's not able to use those executive functioning skills while she's interacting with her child, that child doesn't have the opportunities to begin to develop that part of the brain because that part of the brain develops in the context of the attachment relationship. But when individuals do have that, we find that if a person has the memory of being safe, the memory of what it feels like to be safe and secure, that is something that mentally they can draw from and can go to. It's kind of like going to that mental safe place when something really challenging is happening. That is what they can draw from. That is the place that they can go to, and that helps to heal trauma. So we know that the attachment relationship is crucial to the healing of trauma. Individuals who have not developed a significant secure attachment relationship in infancy, there is hope for that too. The attachment relationship can always be built up. For adults, it's usually in the context of a healthy relationship, like a marriage or other really close person with whom they can feel safe, and that attachment relationship security can be built up. We also find that a huge predictor of success in the healing process is finding purpose and resilience. So like we talked about with Teresa Flores, she was able to find purpose in what she experienced, and from that she was able to draw resilience, and from that she was able to build upon her hope for the future. Victor Franco is a survivor of the Holocaust, was a survivor of the Holocaust. And while he was experiencing all of that, he was very curious about why some people survived and why others didn't. And he wanted to know why some people who were physically very fit and seemed to be the healthiest did not survive in some of those labor and concentration camps, but other individuals who lost so much weight physically were barely there how they were able to survive. And so he started researching that. And what he found was the people who were able to find purpose were able to survive. So the individuals who mentally were able to maintain that resilience, they were the ones who were able to maintain enough hope for the future that they were able to survive and eventually thrive. And this is a quote that he tells us that he said in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, 
He said, the one thing you can't take away from me is the way I choose to respond to what you do to me. The last of one's freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. For those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. And that is what we see with almost all instances of complex trauma. Individuals who are able to pull from that feeling of security and find a purpose are able to find healing. So I want to talk a little bit about the resources. What can we do? Who can we reach out to? I'd encourage you to grab your phone, plug that number into it right now. The human trafficking, national human trafficking hotline number is right there. There's also a text option. This is really important to have because oftentimes, if you're in an emergency, it is great to call 911, but they cannot always guide you on the specifics of whatever you're seeing. And so if you are unsure what is happening or you have a feeling that something is not okay, you can call the human trafficking hotline and they can guide you in terms of either they're going to handle the situation or they can guide you to the appropriate entity who can handle that situation. So it's a very important number to have to give out to other people. That's one very easy way that you can build a circle of protection around your circle of influence. So give that number to your kids. Give that number to people at your workplace, wherever you find yourself on a day-to-day -day basis, that's a very easy way that you can help safeguard against emergencies. So know that number. Another excellent resource that you can familiarize yourself with is the Kent County Human Trafficking Task Force. So there's a task force of individuals from all different disciplines who come together to work on these issues, to work on advocacy, addressing legislation, law issues, treatment, all of those different things, they, they meet on a monthly basis, I believe. And if you're interested, you can be involved with that too, but that's a great resource to reach out to that's right here in our community. There are also many different organizations that I've listed there that do lots of work internationally, nationally, or locally. International Justice Mission is one which does a lot of rescue efforts abroad, especially in other countries. Exodus Cry, Polaris Project, Shared Hope, Women at Risk International, Manassa Project, and Sacred Beginnings are all local agencies here in Grand Rapids that are fighting human trafficking. You can reach out to any of those agencies if you're interested and find out more about what they are doing. Protect Young Eyes is a resource that I would highly encourage all of you to look into. Chris McKenna is the individual I referenced earlier who was able to help get Cosmo After Dark shut down just by his posts and advocacy going viral about that. He is the founder of Protect Young Eyes, and he has incredible resources there about social media safety, dangers and risks to look out for, and how to safeguard against those things specific to technology and social media. So especially if you have young kids or you work with young kids or children of any age, I would highly encourage you to look into that resource. Know what's happening. They do a lot of the research for you. They test a lot of those social media platforms for you. So just be educated. Reach out to that resource and find out how you can make use of it. 
Warning Lights is another program by a lady here in the Grand Rapids area, Jen Amo, who I've had the privilege of working with on many occasions, who does a specific curriculum for adolescents. She oftentimes goes into high schools, into colleges, into middle schools, and trains kids on what to be aware of, how to safeguard themselves, what are the dangers and the risks, and how can we prepare ourselves against them. So she does these trainings in schools, youth groups, different places in the community. She's an excellent resource on sp for specifically kids on the issue of human trafficking. So what should we do and what can we do? I'd encourage you first and foremost to be educated on your community. So find out where you live, what are some of those draws for traffickers to the community that you find yourself in? Where are those different motels or hotels where maybe shady things are going on or those massage parlors that are all around this area? Find out what is close to you in, in your area. We have a Division of Homeland Security specifically in Grand Rapids dedicated to fighting human trafficking because it has such a high presence here. It's a huge issue that people don't think is happening here, and it is. So know what's going on in your community. I'm glad that you're all here tonight just finding out about this information. Share that information with other people. Use your social media proactively. Like Jackie said in the beginning, not everyone has to go out and start doing rescue missions, but you can use your social media platforms to advocate for change that needs to take place, to advocate for things that are inappropriate, specific to social media. Use your social media to fight for those things and to advocate for changes that need to take place. You can also be the person or the home that kids are drawn to. So even if you don't have areas of influence in work or other places, if you are the person that others are drawn to, then you can help them stay safe. You can help them by having educated conversations, by making them aware of these issues. And if your house is the house that people go to, that kids go to, you can protect them and you can ensure their safety by having these conversations, having open communication, and encourage you to start early conversations about standing up for what is right, even in this context. That's a question that I get from parents a lot of the time. Well, how do we talk to young kids about this? We can't really talk to them about human trafficking. No, not in its details. But you can talk to kids about bullying. Because when it comes down to it, what is pornography? Pornography is taking advantage of someone else's vulnerability, pain, or abuse. It's taking pleasure in the exploitation of another person. That's bullying. That can be explained to a child. If you see someone hurting another person, your job is to help them or go get help. Your job is not to watch that. Your job is not to take part in that. That is not okay. You can teach kids from a young age to stand up for what is right, to defend others appropriately, and to request help as needed. 
And then as they get older, you can build up those conversations at an age-appropriate level to include more and more specifics. But they need to know the dangers to look out for in order to be able to safeguard against them. If they don't know, they have no way of being protected against it. So don't be afraid of these conversations. Use the resources available, like Protect Young Eyes and others, to be able to have these conversations appropriately and teach them from a young age what sexual abuse is, what human trafficking is. So in terms of us as the church, I really wanted to focus on Micah 6.8. In Micah 6.8, it says, seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. And that is what we are called to do. We are not called to just sit here and sometimes talk about these issues. We are called to seek justice. That means we are called to advocate for laws that need to be changed. We're called to advocate to our policymakers and legislators. We are called to stand up for something that's not right, even at a young age, in any of our circles of influence. We are called to love mercy. And I think one of the most beautiful but heart-wrenching examples of this that I've experienced was through Women at Risk International. They do a banquet for survivors in many of their safe house programs around the world. And they were having one such banquet for survivors in China. And at that banquet, the girls who were there said, you know, this is really astounding to us. Why do you care? Why do you love us enough to have this beautiful banquet for us? No one has ever shown us this type of appreciation before. What is different about you that makes you love us when by everyone else we've been so mistreated? And those Safe House partners were able to share with them that Christ loved us so much that he allowed his son to die for us. And so because of that and the experience of that love, we want to pour that out on other people. And something that they said in response to that was, well, we want you to have a banquet like this for all of the brothel owners and pimps and traffickers who used and abused and sold and exploited us. I said, because only by experiencing that love of Christ will we ever be able to end the evil of human trafficking. And the only way that those traffickers will ever be able to stop what they're doing is by experiencing that type of radical love. And so war did, Women at Risk International did, they ended up um, a couple years later hosting a banquet for the brothel owners and pimps and traffickers and sharing with them the love of Christ and the mercy of Christ. And many of them, as a result, completely turned their lives around, completely stepped out of that lucrative business and are now fighting human trafficking in those areas of influence that they have. And that is the power of Christ at work, and that is what we are called to do. 
So in a minute, we're going to watch another video, but before we do that, I'm going to explain what we'll do afterwards. During the video, some people will be collecting those question cards that you have. We'll be going through those, and then we will have a question and answer time. And then after that, there will be some baskets on the tables in the back, and there will be names of organizations on each of those cards. And I'd encourage you as you leave later this evening to take one of those cards, find out more about the organization that's listed there, find out about the work that they're doing, do some research. That's a very simple way that you can get involved and know what are the needs of this organization, how can we step in to fill in those gaps, how can we meet those needs, what can we do, how can we maybe volunteer with that organization and commit to praying for that organization and the work that they're doing. For many of these organizations, they have respite needs. So they have, like I said earlier, maybe a certain number of beds in their program, and then they don't have room for more. And if there's a need for more, maybe you can provide a room or a bed for an emergency situation. If a girl or a young boy or whoever needs a safe place to go, you can provide that care. Many of them have wish lists, even Amazon wish lists, of materials that they need. And so you can purchase some of those materials or things that the survivors need or that organization needs. That's a very tangible way that you can take an action step to get involved. You can also volunteer and join in the work that some of these places are doing. So later on, when we leave, I'd encourage you to take one of those cards from that basket. We're going to watch a video, and then we will do some questions, and then we will be done for tonight. Let's take a look. I'm Sherry Montgomery, the founder of A House of Promise. The House of Promise is a safe haven for girls to come to that have been severely sexually abused or trafficked. It's a beautiful home that I can house eight to 10 girls in. It feels like a home. It's not a house, it's actually a home where the girls build relationship, we're a family. We do life together here. I've been at the House of Promise for almost three months now. It's been amazing at points challenging at other points because it's doing things that I've never done. Like learning new coping skills and accepting love that's genuine. Their concept of what love is is so skewed. And so they're, they're looking at us like, okay, you say you love us, but what do you want from us? And you know, it's, it's, it's heart-wrenching. I was in a gang and I worked for them I would wake up in the morning and they would be like, oh, you gotta go to this client at this time and then you have another one after this and another one after that. I didn't get my money, they just gave me drugs instead of the money and the money went to them. So it feels good to not sell my body for something. Um, it feels good not to be controlled anymore. And it feels good to just be able to be myself in my life, I've always had people wanting something. It's always been conditional love. Like when people would say, you know, I'm proud of you, it was still a condition. They would instantly take it back if I did something wrong. When you see a girl that 
you know, at the end of the day, she curls up in a ball with a blanket and sucks her thumb. You know, then you remind you how broken they really are and how much damage people have done to them in their life. Cherry's vision started a long time ago as far as for the House of Promise. And I knew from a young age that we all have a purpose in life and I found my purpose and I told my business to uh, do this and you know if I can just even change one girl's life it's worth it and that's what I'm seeing. We cook together. I do schooling too so they help me with my schooling like homework. We do yoga. We do therapy. We've gone to things like Celebrate Recovery. We've done some art classes and we go to church, which I love. When I first came here, all they wanted to do was hug me and I didn't understand why. It's like, what's the catch? Like, what do I have to do to do this? And there wasn't any catch and that's nice. Never thought this is what I was gonna do in my life. And if you're not called to do something like this, I don't recommend it to anybody. It's heartbreaking and the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. It's rewarding knowing that they're safe and can come to us or to the other staff and, you know, just sort of feel like they're somewhere where they can grow. I like being with the staff and hanging out with my dog and, and outside. It's beautiful outside. There's a lot of peace here. So I just like soaking it in. You need a house like the House of Promise because they can come here and they can share their horror stories. They can share their war stories. They're normal here. I want to be a normal person with a job and a house. I have three kids also, and I want to be the mom that I wasn't. I want to be able to take them to school every day and watch them grow up. I want to see more girls get help, and I want to see more houses built for more people to get help. This is this hidden secret that if you want to turn your head or close your eyes, you don't have to look at it. But the reality is it's out there, it's in every community. And you don't have to do what I'm doing and getting my hands dirty, but you can help the House of Promise do that. You can write a check, you can you know, volunteer if you want, but instead of these girls being out there on the streets. Help the House of Promise get them to be successful girls in society again. When you've lived a life like I've lived, you don't see a lot of love. But then knowing, sorry, but then knowing that people care and that people love enough to do those things and that there are good people out there is amazing so thank you So that's one example of an ordinary person who's doing something really extraordinary. You don't have to be incredibly 
skilled or have a certain amount of expertise or in anything. You just have to have a passion and a desire to do the right thing and to step into that gap. And any one of us can do that. And that's what I think is so inspiring about that story. It's an ordinary person doing an extraordinary thing. We've got about 10 more minutes. I know some people were wondering about time. We're going to go through some questions and then I'm going to, we're gonna ask Josh Fuller to close us in prayer and then we will go from there. So a couple questions. Someone said, we're in the process of being licensed for foster care. Would that also qualify us to be a placement resource for victims? Yes. So oftentimes for a lot of these organizations to volunteer or to get involved in any capacity, you have to go through a background check and a similar process as for the foster care licensing program. And so you can reach out to any of these organizations and they can walk you through those steps of what are the requirements and how you can get involved in that way. And that's, that's an excellent question and the answer is very much yes. So... This was a great question. Someone said, how do you recognize the difference between grooming and a real relationship? That's a very good distinction to make. I would say one of the main things to look out for is that vulnerability of, or that step of isolation. If you notice that someone is trying to isolate an individual from the other people in their lives, even if they're not a trafficker, that's just a warning flag. That's a warning flag for an unhealthy relationship if they're trying to isolate them from the other people in their life. So if you look for any of those steps, any of those awareness things, if for some reason they're giving them excessive amounts of gifts, things that are out of proportion, things that don't make sense, maybe financially or otherwise, that's something that you can be mindful of. Again, does it necessarily mean they're a trafficker? Maybe not, but is it likely unhealthy in some capacity? Maybe, so something to be on guard for. So looking at those steps, if you have concerns about any of them, it's likely a red flag, and so that's something that you can be on the lookout for. Another question was, what can the church do for survivors who are in the church? I think that's an excellent question. We can provide support in a number of ways. Again, looking at those vulnerabilities, how can we step into those gaps? How can we meet those needs, whether they're emotional, financial, or relational, or anything else, so that a different not safe person is not meeting those needs. If we're already meeting those needs and helping that individual meeting them where they're at, then that other person won't have the opportunity to do that. So that is how we can very actively step into those gaps. The other part was, what resources can the church offer? I think we can offer a lot of things such as this. I think it's wonderful that we're able to offer presentations or trainings or other opportunities. The church can do more and more of that to educate people on these types of issues and then learn how to step into those gaps for people on an individual basis. Someone had a question about the orphanage scam and the question was, are volunteers with good intentions visiting and turning into customers, or are people just setting up fake orphanages just to abuse kids? Yes, that's a good question. 
So oftentimes, volunteers are not turning into customers, but by financially supporting those fake orphanages, they are supporting the exploitation of those kids who have been placed there only for the reason of bringing in money for those traffickers. Does that make sense? So those volunteers are going there with good intentions, not knowing that that money is going into the pockets of traffickers who have just brought those kids there for the purpose of getting that money. And someone asked, why are there not programs in terms of curriculum in schools for talking about human trafficking? That's an excellent question. That is something that I wonder very often. Why don't we have that? And I think all I can come up with is people are afraid to talk about it. It's easier to pretend it's not there than to acknowledge the reality of it. But that's how people become targets. That's how people become vulnerable. So if we were willing to have this as part of our curriculum, curriculums in school districts, we could set kids up for safety and safeguard them against these things. So I think that's a huge need. Again, I'd encourage you, advocate within your school district to have programs brought in, to have kids educated on this. That's another very tangible step that you can take. And then someone also shared that Protect Young Eyes Chris McKenna will be having a presentation this coming Monday, March 18, 6.30 to 8.30 at Fairhaven, which is right down the road. So if you have not heard him speak before, I would highly recommend that you check that out this coming Monday to learn more about that Protect Young Eyes program, which is a really great opportunity. Before we close, I just want to share this verse with you. There is hope. There is much that can be done, especially through the power of Jesus Christ. There's um, a lot of healing that people can experience. Lives can be transformed. That's something that's big here, talking about stories of transformation. And this is something that we find, a verse that we find in John 16, 33. It says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And that is a hope that we can cling to. That is a hope that we can draw strength from. And that is a hope that we can pass on and reflect to the very darkest corners of the world around us. So I'm going to ask Josh to close us in prayer and then feel free. I will be around afterwards. So if you have a question that you wanted to ask individually or not in the group or just talk about something else, I will be here and available for some time. You're more than welcome to do that. And then please take one of the cards in the basket in the back, find an organization that you can research, that you can pray for, and that you can figure out a way to take an action step to get involved with that specific organization. Thank you. Diana, thank you. Um, what a, a resource to have in our church who can educate us about that. Um, would you guys stand with me and we'll close in prayer. <clears throat> Father God, you are our Father. You tell us that before you formed us in the womb, you knew us. 
could tell us that your children are fearfully and wonderfully made. God, there are plenty of us in this room tonight who have children. And to think that someone's daughter or someone's son is sold. May that stir us to the point of action, Lord. May we not walk out of here tonight thinking that was a good talk. But may we walk out of here tonight and do something. God, convict us to pray. But even as it says in your word that if you say to a brother, go, be warm and well-fed, and then do nothing, what good is that? God, convict us to pray and convict us to get involved in some way. I believe that you can rescue every trafficked victim. I believe that you can show those young boys and young girls what it means to be truly loved by a father who has purpose for them. God, I ask your hand a blessing on Diana and the work she continues to do. I thank you for loving us. I thank you that you are a God who can redeem anyone from anything at any time. Lord, I pray that you would warm the hearts of the traffickers. That they would come to a saving faith in you and turn their life around. I believe that you are that kind of God who can do that, Lord. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for being a God whose uh, love is never ending. Thanks for letting us be part of your work in showing mercy and walking humbly with you. We love you. Amen.